Welcome back to another episode of The 10th Muse. I'm Helena. And I'm Siobhan. And this is the podcast where we talk about a unique collection of women through history that have done pretty amazing things. Yep, that's right. So from artists to activists, scientists to singers, these are not the women you already know. Instead, they're women that we think deserve more recognition and we hope that you enjoy hearing about them as much as we do. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our second mini muse. This is the show that's not our long one that you get every other week. It's a little bit different and it's one of us talking rather than two, but Helena is here for the ride. Hello, Helena. I am here. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> it's not just me talking at you, although we were just discussing it could be a long one. We'll see. I'm excited. I don't know who you've done this week. I don't know what you've done. She says it's going to be a very long one with a lot of different people, so I'm I'm intrigued because it's not what I originally thought it was. No, Helena thought I was going down the music route, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That was my first. That's what my first kind of thought when we decided to do like these mini episodes of like talking about women in like a broader subject context. Um, I automatically thought you were going to do a music one. Mm-hmm. I will be doing one. I definitely have some ideas on that front, and I definitely think. Well, I won't even do one. I'll be doing multiple mini ones probably with with musicians and things. But yeah, this um this is a bit out there, but this is if you know me as well, like I think no one will be surprised. I don't think you'll be surprised once I start talking about this as well. Cuz this week I am going to talk to you about I'll tell you what, I'll give you a working title. This is The Women Behind the Mouse. Can you work out what that is? The Women Behind the Mouse. Is it like um computer programmers no (laughs) no the one behind the mouse yeah i don't know i'm gonna talk to you right now about the women originators and super talented artists of disney oh that makes so much sense (laughs) that's cool okay cool but i love that you thought computer programmers yeah i i yeah i I didn't know what to say yeah when you say mouse mouse now I get it. It's like Mickey Mouse. That makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense now. Okay. All right. So I'm going to take on a little journey of like the very early days of Disney and take you through a few women who basically are behind some of the biggest films and theme park rides and all the different Disney theme parks in general, really. Mm. Um, and I'll give you a couple of recommendations for some books and some documentaries that I'm currently watching my way through, really. All right, so I'm going to start off with Bianca Maggioli, who was a Italian-born American story artist. She was a concept artist and writer. She took classes at the School of Art Institute of Chicago and McKinley High School. While she was there, she met Walt Disney. So he dropped out after his freshman year to volunteer in the Red Cross. And so she only actually met him once there on the day after he came back to school, like dressed in his GI uniform to say goodbye. So she said of, of this, like, I was graduating midterm, handed in my girl grab book, and he drew pictures in it. She, there's no, you know, big historical friendship there. She just met him once. And then in 1934, she sent a letter to Disney expressing interest in working in his animation department. And in 1935, she became the first woman hired into the studio's all-male story department, where she became a storyboard artist for Walt Disney Productions. Cool. So this is kind of a massive step forward for Disney because before she was hired, women solely worked in the ink and paint departments where they would like trace and color outlines made by male animators. So there was no women kind of specifically drawing original characters and specifically like, this is in the early days of Disney as well, but it's it's not 
you know, there's no women in these in these positions. So in 1937, she translates a story. I wonder if you can guess which film this is. Okay, cool. Uh, so she translates a story from its original Italian and she had to consider how to adapt the story for the screen and that story was called The Adventure di Pinocchio. Oh, well, Pinocchio. <laughs> and Elena looked at me so unimpressed then. <laughs> I thought it was going to... I thought you were going to tell me some, like, um, like the the fairy tale and I was going to... I wouldn't. I didn't realise that the... You were like, oh, guess what one it is? Oh, it's something about Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I thought, could, you know, that was a good sh- opportunity there to wind you up and it, it worked, didn't it? So, um, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, all the like, Grimm's fairy tales, yeah. how they're originally like, um, originally like different to obviously the Disney versions. I thought you, it was going to be something like that. I thought you were going to no, spin I just saw an opportunity to annoy my English literature degree holding friend with a really bad joke basically (laughs) (laughs) all right so she works on a a wide range of films for the company from fantasia to cinderella and peter pan and she even created a sympathetic elephant character that would inspire dumbo so she's right there with all these you know the the original classics i guess of the disney Uh major motion pictures unsurprisingly her male colleagues like resent her success and they didn't keep it a secret especially in story meetings so in one letter she wrote to a friend years later she said i sat in the corner with my heart beating wildly and gasping for her so she wasn't very comfortable yeah in that situation because they knew that she was kind of achieving more than they were maybe so in 1940 she went on holiday and she was kind of overworking at Disney a little bit, but when she gets back, she finds her desk had been cleared out and she'd been fired, so she basically wasn't told oh my God. that she was being fired. Yeah, really abrupt. But yeah, but basically, Majoli was one of a powerful group of women who dominated the studio during its golden age from 1930 to 1970, and I'm going to tell you about a few more of those women, basically. Cool. She worked alongside a woman called Sylvia Holland, so I'll get on to her now. She was an illustrator and the second woman to become a storyboard artist for Disney. So she contributed to story direction, concept art, colour studies, timing and supervising other artists. So she was later laid off at the end of World War Two, but she was the first female story director and she worked closely with the visual effects department, eager to shape Fantasia into a delicate rendering of art and nature. So I don't know if you've ever seen Fantasia, yeah, I have once, like a while ago. She was a um, a musician as well as an artist, so she found the concept of Fantasia to be like particularly interesting. She led the story team for the Waltz of the Flowers sequence, mm. and yeah, she later said that she enormously enjoyed working on Fantasia, even though she had problems with a few of the male artists who didn't like taking orders from women. So this is kind of a common theme. Seems like a theme, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think because these were the first two women to kind of get into that department and, and be not just sort of ink and colour girls, they were they were pushing boundaries a little bit. And I mean, on Fantasia, these animators were pushing boundaries as well of effects um, animation. So they were putting like really significant resources into effects, such as like making snowflakes swirl and dewdrops glisten. And it's, you know, they're working in close quarters to make these effects happen. And, and they're not, they're sort of resenting it being a woman who's leading them, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, this technology would be improved upon in the studio's newest feature after that, which was Bambi. And they began testing their artwork in the multiplane camera, which added depth and realism to their scenes. So I don't know if you how much you know about Disney and how it works, but they invented different 
cameras and different ways of doing art styles and that's why there's such a, a very specific disney aesthetic mm-hmm. for the early like classic disney films right and they use this multiplaying camera where they basically had like they would you know the way in like say bambi or or sleeping beauty or any of those like classic disney films there's always like a depth of field it always looks like there's sort of closer trees to you at the front and then it moves all the way back that's yeah. because they use this specific camera like with with um in Sleeping Beauty there's the classic image of like the the woods and then there's the castle in the background. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So like that was they would use a, a specific camera where they would set up that art at the front and then layer it all backwards and then they would actually film it with a camera rather than it being all separate animation. Mm-hmm. They would layer it up and film it. Oh cool. So that's the way it works. So they, they were using all this technology that it's very forward thinking and, and it's it's kind of the way now, I guess, I'm not a fan of the current live action Disney films, remaking them all with animals or whatever, mm. but I guess even that, they're pioneering that type of animation as well at the minute. So they're always kind of at the forefront, I guess. Mm-hmm. So there's actually this one anecdote in which the artists working on Bambi were gathered around a pile of these mysterious sketches. They found these sketches and they didn't know where the drawings had come from, but they all agreed that they were chilling and that the hunting dogs seemed to leap off the page and so everyone assumed that the mystery artist was a man and then Retta Scott walked in so like she walks in and she's like oh no they're my drawings and they're all in shock because how has a woman done these mm. these artworks basically that's cool she joined the company in 1938 to work in the story department but her sketches for Bambi caught the eye of Disney so when the film went into production she was assigned to animate scenes of hunting dogs and all the sort of violent stuff because that was the artwork they got the inspiration from. And she worked under the film supervising director David D. Hand and was tutored by Disney animator Eric Larson. So there was a this was like a significant step forward for women at the time because in the 1930s era, Disney studio women were only considered to be there for routine tasks, the ink and paint stuff I described before. And so the most recognised Walt Disney female artist is Mary Blur, who has a very specific style of artwork. You talked about Sleeping Beauty before. That style, that's kind of how she drew... And I guess if you've ever been to Disneyland Paris, that's based off Mary Blur artwork, the way that the okay. the castle sits and then all the trees around it are kind of shaped into squares and it's all very geometric shapes and s- sharp colours. That's Mary Blur style, Yeah. Okay, I know what you mean, yeah. So I'll get on to her in a second, but Retta Scott is kind of the one who opened the doors up for the women in the animation industry because she was the, she became the first woman to receive screen credit as an animator. And by the spring of 1941, she was considered a specialist in animal sketches. Like that was her skill set. She was really talented at that and she was recognized for it. She was laid off for a while in 1941, but was quickly rehired in 1942. She was basically fired due to the Disney animator strike in the summer of 1941, even though she was one of only a few people who weren't actually striking, but she was just caught up in all of that. Right, okay. There's obviously a common theme here of the women being sort of deemed expendable and they'll get fired at the drop of a hat kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely sounds like that. Scott works alongside her best friend who, like I say, that was Mary Blur. So many people have heard of her and if you haven't, you definitely know her work. So she... Worked on the concept art and was art director for Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Cinderella, all these major films. And she created character designs for enduring attractions at Disney theme parks. So she designed, or her artwork is the basis for It's a Small World in Disneyland. 
Okay, I've never been to Disneyland. I'll, I'll hold my hands up now. I've never been to Disneyland Paris or Florida. Any Disney. No, no, so this is, no. yeah. Well, this is all right, because this is the original Small World of Disneyland in California, and I haven't been to that one, so. Okay, fair enough. We are on the same boat here, but it's it's a very <laughs> iconic style. I We'll probably have some pictures up on social medias for this, this mini muse where you can see it. I'll try and make sure there's some Mary Blair artwork in there as we're talking about it a lot, but yeah. It's a very specific art style. Like you will know it. And like I say, if you've watched Sleeping Beauty, it's that. Yeah, I, I can picture it now. Yeah. It's very like watercolours and, and kind of... She had a skill for using certain colours together that you wouldn't necessarily at the time have used. So like colour clashes that we would probably recognise now as stuff that you would use as combinations she was doing when people would be like, why would you put those two together? Yeah. Kind of thing. Oh, cool. Yeah, so she was born in Oklahoma and she was hired by Walt Disney in 1940 and she worked on early projects with Majoli in Holland. She was sent on a um, research trip to South America with Walt Disney and a group of artists as part of the good neighbour policy of the then President Franklin Roosevelt. So her watercolours on this trip impressed Disney and then she became art supervisor for the animated feature films that came out of those trips, like The Three Caballeros, that's the first of many research trips for Blair and the travel like deepened her artistic sensibility and her bold modern style that defined Disney films in the 1950s as did her own personal struggles and achievements. So for example, there's a sequence in Dumbo which is the baby mind sequence and that's really emotional part of the film. You know, you're nodding along. Yep, and I remember. Yeah, well, that actually came out of Blair's struggle with multiple miscarriages. So it's like her personal oh, wow. experience she wrote into these films and like designed artwork around it. She wanted to hold a child in her arms the way that Dumbo's being cradled. She's using her own emotional and personal experiences and like putting it into this artwork that endures, I guess. Wow. So yeah, after she completed Peter Pan, she resigned from Disney to work freelance on other projects, but at the request of Walt Disney, who respected her work a lot, he brought her in to work on Disney's new attraction, which was It's a Small World. So I'm going to give you all the context for these things, because I feel like I'll, I'll give you them. If you've never been there, I'm going <laughs> to give you some context. I have no idea. Yeah, okay, so this, you know It's a Small World, the song though, surely. It's like the yeah. most annoying song in existence. Yeah. Sorry to Disney purists, but I do not like it. But it is, like, it's, there's no way around it. Yeah, so that was actually originally built for the 1964 World's Fair, which was held in New York, and then moved to Disneyland after the fair closed. So the way that this worked was Disney kind of recognised that if he built these attractions for specific companies at the World's Fair to advertise them, he essentially was getting free money from them to build his attractions, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, I get that. So, like, there's another there's another one that I'll mention later on, like Carousel of Progress, that was another one that was built for World's Fair and was sponsored by General Motors, I believe. But then when World's Fair finished, he moved those rides into Disneyland and that became his attractions. And now these rides are, like, still at Disneyland now. And so he kind of got free funding to do it because he was building them to promote other companies. Right. And so, yeah, so she she's moved on to the It's a Small World project. She also creates murals that are present in Disney parks, hotels, and other Disney attractions, like, even to this day. Yeah, here's another common theme. So after Walt Disney's death in 1966, the company never hired her as a freelancer again. Really? So Walt Disney was kind of like a bit of a champion of the women. It seems like it. I think that, yeah, he wasn't afraid, I think, to 
bring them in. If you saw talent, you're going to use it. Mary Blair especially epitomizes a lot of these films from this golden age of, of Disney and it's because he like believed in her and liked her watercolours and things like that. And yeah, I think he championed them a bit more than obviously once he passed away. There wasn't as much pushing for it, I think. So Mary Blair had worked alongside women in the Imagineering department, such as Alice Davis. So if you're a Disney novice like Helena here, the Imagineers, so Imagineering is like a combination between imagination and engineering. Okay, I get that. And so basically the Imagineers are responsible for Disney theme parks and like attractions specifically. Illustrators, architects, engineers, lighting designers, show writers and graphic designers. So they like a whole range of different skill sets and they're all in this one department and they basically are in charge of theme parks, essentially. That's my summary for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any questions, send them my way. So, <laughs> Alice Davis is a costume designer. She's still alive today. She was born in 1929. Oh, cool. Um, she's incredibly talented. In mid-1950s, she was called into Disney by her future husband, Mark Davis. So, he needed a costume for dancer Helen Stanley to wear as she performed the live-action reference footage for the animation of Princess Aurora and Sleeping Beauty. So he needed a very specific, like, yeah, it's, it's really cool. He needed a dress that would flow, but, like, stay structured, and they could use it as reference for the animation. And so he brought her in. They ended up, they, they sort of bonded while working on this project. So they get married in June 1956. And then in 1963, Walt Disney came back to Alice to ask her to assist Mary Blair in designing the costumes for the audio animatronic children for It's a Small World. So... Alex, I feel like I have to explain every little thing. The audio animatronics now, they are like the the sort of robots in all the Disney rides that move and interact with you. And like in Small World, they're the ones, yeah, they're the little kids okay. that sing and stuff like that. It's the best way I can explain it. Yeah. <laughs> they're just the, the like moving robots. Yeah, I get you. But Disney as a company kind of were at the forefront of the development of this sort of technology as well. So yeah, so Alice researched the different cultures and regions being represented. She translated the attire costumes into over 150 different costumes for this ride. Wow. And she also designed the period-specific costumes for the Carousel of Progress, which, like I say, was the other attraction at the World's Fair in 1964 that later ended up in a theme park. Then in 1965, Alice said that she went from what she described as sweet little children to dirty old men overnight because Walt Disney assigned her to create the costumes for the animatronic characters that would be in Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. Oh, cool. And, yes, she's like, all these iconic rides that you've heard of, you even if you've never been to Disney. Like, I have you... I have seen that one. I have seen that one. If we take it back to episode one, I am very into Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, my God. <laughs> we can talk about this then. What about the fact that Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie series, is based on the success based of the, the ride. ride? Yeah. I know. She's saying that very cockily, uh, listeners. She's very it's happy just to know I, that. I, that's the one thing I know. I'm not being cocky. <laughs> You're so easy to annoy. Rude. <laughs> so, yes, she was in charge of those costuming and she like made sure that they were period specific but also had like a Disney flair to them, basically. So here's another little fun fact on Alice. So her and her husband, Mark, retired from Imagineering in 1978, but she still consults on various projects. So like they'll still call her in now if they've got, you know, something that she could help with. So she helped with the Pixar film Up. 
Oh, cool. So obviously like the central question of that film is what are the most important things in life? And so the Up filmmaking team turned to their like oldest acquaintances and relatives and, and sort of took their memories, talked to them and were like, okay, what, you know, what sort of things could you tell me about your life and like living with your husband and things like that? And then they used that for the story to help shape that relationship. How cute is that? That is lovely. Yeah. That is so cute. I did not know that. Oh, bless. I think Up has made literally everyone who's ever watched it cry. That first five minutes. Like knowing, knowing that as well. Mm-hmm. That is like, that is beautiful. Yeah. It's really nice. It's like going, going to your grandparents and stuff and being like, okay, please tell me about, you know, your first love and everything. And then using that as the story. That's It's pretty mm. cool. Alright, so then another Imagineer I can't really go on without mentioning is Harriet Burns. So Burns was the first woman hired in the Walt Disney Imagineering department that I was just like explaining Mm. about. So she worked at Disney Studios in 1955 as a prop and set designer for the Mickey Mouse Club. And so apparently she stood out on set a lot. So she didn't want to shape herself into, you know, fitting in or anything like that. So she is on set. She's dressed in high heels and a skirt. And she's using all the hardware and tools. So she's like using like drills and all this. And she's got all these burly men around her in the prop department. And she's just like, nah, I'm going to wear my, my high heels and my skirt and just cool. be like a girly girl. Yeah. And it's like 1950s. Like, so she's sticking to one stereotype maybe in her fashion. Yeah. But then she's breaking every other stereotype in what she's doing. Yeah. Probably. So I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm, I agree. So she shares a workstation with a fellow Disney employee named Fred Georgia. Georgia was a um, model builder for Wed Enterprises, which, which, like I say, is now Imagineering. And so he was working on prototype models for the future Disneyland theme park. And in addition to her job as a set builder, she starts working with him in the model shop, building miniature prototypes of Disneyland buildings and attractions. And so Wed Enterprises, which is now Imagineering, that originally consisted of just three people, and that was Fred, Harriet Burns, and Waithel Rogers, and that was it. And they were known as the the Wed Model Shop, and they eventually built into this company now that's Walt Disney Imagineering is still going today and shapes all the theme parks around the world. But yeah, she basically designed all of these major Disney theme park institutions. So for example, she built an exact model of the entire Pirates of the Caribbean dart ride, and she designed Haunted Mansion, which opened in 1969. I love the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> Is that what the mon? No, I'm th- no ignore me. I'm thinking of Monster House. <laughs> Wait, no, there was a film called Haunted Mansion, wasn't there? Haunted Mansion. There was a film with Eddie Murphy in it. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of as well. Oh, what a classic! That gets that gets properly slagged off, you know. But I think it's a, I think it's a classic. It gets completely forgotten about, but it was so good. I remember it once, and I've like never seen it again. And I was like, I remember there was a time when I was like. Is was that real? I know. Did I watch that? <laughs> no, it's it's um it's universally known as a bit of a flop that one, but I think it's because Haunted Mansion is one of those rides that n- now is like such an institution in the minds of Disney theme park fans that it can't be touched. It's the same with Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't like the ride Pirates of the Caribbean, but sort of God forbid you say that in like fans of Disney theme parks because it's the Holy Grail. These are like rides that. Pirates of the Caribbean especially is like a ride that Walt Disney specifically worked on so you can't be like oh I actually don't really like mm, it yeah but yeah so so I guess Haunted Mansion's one of them so when they made the film version and it didn't live up to everyone's expectations because it was this cheesy Eddie Murphy comedy I think people just don't like it but I think it's a classic it was a great film from what I remember 
it's a good we'll watch it at halloween we'll crack it out <laughs> have yeah. film night sounds good Okay, so then outside of Disneyland, Harriet was part of a team of Disney employees who created several different attractions, a team which included another Disney woman I'm going to touch on, which is Joyce Carlson. Joyce was an artist and designer credited with creating the, you know, universe of singing children for It's a Small World. She also was an ink artist in the Walt Disney Animation Studios, so she worked on films like Cinderella, Peter Pan and Sleeping Beauty. She was the lead ink artist for the 1955 film Lady and the Tramp. Mm. I didn't realise that was so old. Yeah, that's like a proper, you know, these are all like, that's the thing, there's like the classic era of Disney movies, which is all the ones you imagine from like your childhood that you just know the names of and you might not have even watched. They're so old. Yeah. And then there's, there was like a Disney renaissance, that's films like Tarzan and Hunchback and Notch Down, like that whole era, the 90s yeah. Pocahontas, all the ones when we were actually kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've moved now to sort of, They've stepped away from hand-drawn animation and, and it's all, you know, mm. computer-generated. We could literally... Do not get me started on Disney. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the last film they did that was purely hand-drawn animation was Princess and the Frog. Oh yeah, that was a good film. And now it's all computer-generated, which I'm not a fan of. I like... This is kind of why I'm speaking about these women as well, is they mastered the skill of this type of a hot that I think yeah has died out to an extent in terms of it's just not used by major companies anymore. Uh-huh. Major studios, but it's like the most beautiful, I think. Fair. Bold statements. Is my opinion. <laughs> we'll do a whole side section on Lilo and Stitch and how it's the best Disney film of all time and we can talk about the animation in that and the watercolour usage and we'll just talk about it. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just talk about it. Just, just you know. Go down that one. I'll tell you about Lilo's Stitch another time, Helena. Um, so yeah, Joyce worked, she spent 56 years working on Disney animated films and theme park attractions alongside other women that, again, I could talk about for ages. I've kind of had to cut this down a lot. There was a lot more women from this time that I wanted to speak about. So there's like Leota Toombs. She is known, if you were into theme parks, you'd know what I mean here. But in the Haunted Mansion, she's the face of Madame Leota, which is like this woman in the crystal ball Mm. in this one particular scene. And when you go outside the attraction at Disneyland in California specifically, she's the voice of Little Leota outside the attraction, which is like this classic Disney theme park nerdy thing to know about. But that's her, basically. Um, so she works alongside her, Harriet Burns, and Glendra Von Kessel, who, again, I could talk about for ages, but we won't go into it. I probably talk about Disney theme parks for, like, hours and hours, but I think that it's important that people hear about the women who stepped out of the roles they were sort of assigned as simply ink and, you know, colourists, and they showed through artistic talents that they were worth a seat at the table, working with on some of, like, the most iconic films and theme park attractions of all time. They just proved it with their own skills and I think that's kind of cool to talk about and they shaped this whole era of Disney basically yeah I agree I want to skip forward a little bit just to end on Mm. and say you've probably heard of Frozen of course (laughs) (laughs) the major film that no one can escape from no one can ever escape from it but it is great it is good. I can't knock it because it's got Idina Menzel and Kristen Bell in it and they're like two of my favourite people, like humans. Mm. And Idina Menzel, I love. And so I cannot knock it. Um, even though Let It Go gets in your head and stays there. <laughs> and now everyone is singing it in their head because I've just named that song. Yeah. But yeah, so obviously this film was a massive success, but did you know that it was co-directed and written by a woman, Jennifer Lee? No, I did not. 
Yeah. But that makes sense because it is so like obviously it's one of the one of the first ones that's like not about like the princess and the prince. Yeah. You know. That's what I'm going to get onto a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in doing so cuz it was it was directed and written by her, she became the first woman whose film earned over a billion dollars worldwide. Get it. And she's the first woman director at Walt Disney Animation Studios to win an Academy Award. Nice. But here's my fun facts for you, Helena, because okay. I bet you didn't know that Frozen started to be developed in 1938. No. Oh my God. Yeah. So in 1938, so this is linking back to why I'm talking about these women from the specific era, basically, because I think I could do a whole nother episode, like mini one on women currently in Disney. So I wanted to do the sort of classic golden era of Disney first. But yeah, so in 1938, the treatment for Frozen was written by Mary Goodrich. So Mary Goodrich was a reporter for the Hartford Courant and an aviator who at age 26 completed the first female solo flight to Cuba. Wow. So, yeah. So basically, Goodrich worked on Fantasia and Dumbo, all these films I've talked about already. But she also adapted The Snow Queen, which was written in the 1840s. I was going to ah, say The is. Snow Queen. Here she is. I was like, I know. <laughs> I I remember being <laughs> utterly terrified by The Snow Queen when I was a kid. Yeah. My granny and granddad used to have all these like old videos that they'd just like mm-hmm. stick on for us. And they had like, they had like um, Nelly the Elephant. They had um, Swallows and Amazons and they had The Snow Queen. And, like, me and my siblings and, like, my cousins, we were all terrified by the Snow Queen. <laughs> Snow Queen. Well, that was, this was going to be a Disney version of it. Well, obviously, you know this, but it was written in the 1840s by Hans Christian Andersen. I should give that for the listeners. Uh-huh. And so, in the mid-1990s, the Snow Queen was reimagined at the studio as an animated action-adventure film. So, she'd written this treatment in the 1930s, and then in the 1990s, they kind of crack it back out again. During that renaissance period, like I say, when all the films When We Were Little came out, they took it back out of sort of development and were like, okay, what can we do with this? So I'm going to tell you the original plot for Frozen. Mm -hmm. So the original idea was that Elsa was the villain. Yep. And she was, she froze the heart of a poor peasant girl named Anna. So Anna, this is all still same sort of characters, but completely different relationship. The concept art showed an evil ice queen with light blue skin, spiky short hair, and a coat made from live weasels. Oh, God. That's terrifying. Just picture that in your mind. It's like an icy Cruella de Vil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How I'm picturing it. But yeah, so the film's direction was still up in the air, and then someone said, sisters. That's what we should do, is like, Uh sisters. And that obviously changed the plot significantly. So it shifted a lot when Jennifer Lee, who, like I say, directed it and wrote it, she realised that the only way to achieve the ending she had in mind was to have Anna sacrifice her life for Elsa to subvert that decades-old happily ever after marriage plots that you were talking about before. So she realises, like, okay, if I want to subvert that and change the way this ends, that's what I need to do is make them sisters and shift it, basically. This is kind of a pretty cool little anecdote. So in part of the brainstorming effort for Frozen, Lee held a sister summit in which she invited women from every department of Walt Disney Animation Studios to share their life experiences and give input for the story's direction. So you'll like this part. Male colleagues were invited to sit in, but they were forbidden from speaking. So they could come and listen to the women talking, but they could not contribute. My kind of seminar. It's a classic. 
But yeah, so it, this was a turning point for the studio because it's built its success for so long on women's ideas and talent and artistic ability and, you know, just, I guess, their flair and, and then it's not giving them the credit they deserved and they were so easily shifted out of the company and, and, you know, just disregarded and I think that's pretty cool that with Frozen, that kind of changed. That's cool. I like the sound of that. I, I, like, the, I like the idea that they... She, did she just bring in women or did she bring in like women who had sisters? I think just women in general, maybe. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Yeah, I think the idea is that they were all, they're like the sisters of Disney. Like they are all together. Okay, yeah. Okay. A lot of this research as well is from a book I'm actually currently reading by this author, Natalia Holt. So she's written this book called The Queens of Animation, The Untold Story of the Women Who Transformed the World of Disney and Made Cinematic History. And that's where I got a lot of this research. It's from her. She has a lot of online articles where she talked about the book and stuff. So I thought I would maybe read a little quote from that to end on. So she says, The work of these women surrounds us, even though many of their names have faded from our consciousness, often replaced by those of the men they worked with. They have shaped the evolution of female characters in film, advanced our technology, and broken down gender barriers in order to give us the empowering storylines we have begun to see in film and animation today. For some of the women at Disney today, their influence is immeasurable. Wow. Powerful. So, yeah, I would recommend that book that I've just named, The Queens of Animation. And then also, if I've piqued your interest about Imaginary Helena, there is a docu-series on Disney Plus called The Imagineering Story, which I am eating up every episode of. It's incredible. It's really interesting. Oh, cool. And it's like one of them. It's been released week by week and stuff. Mm. Yeah, I'm watching that and really enjoying it. Good. Sounds good. But yeah, I recommend those two and wanted to give you like a bit of a whistle stop tour of women in Disney and just sort of the, like I say, the the influence they had but didn't necessarily get credit for, I think. The, these are the women who, like I say, shaped all these classic films that we all know and have watched a million times and grew up with and it's their art style that, you know, got them there. So, mm. yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't know like any of that. Um, You know, I, I like Disney but not... I, maybe as much as some others like mm-hmm. it was always just like I, I loved the films that like I watched growing up yeah but like it's really nice to know that there's like specific art types like Mary Blair's in um in Sleeping Beauty that's like because it is really as you said it is really like um recognizable and like really different from like Beauty and the Beast for example or like you know any of the other films um but yeah that was really interesting I learned a lot there thanks well yeah like like you're saying I think as well pretty much every Disney film has a different art style and you can tell that there's different art director each time or if they worked on a few you can tell and I think obviously there's a general style that, that you can always tell it's kind of a Disney film mm. but I think the best ones are where they went outside the box a bit or they developed something developed a type of technology or they went for it a little bit differently I think that the most recognisable art there a lot of the time is the women. And I think that's pretty cool to yeah. acknowledge. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's my mini muse, my first one. Nice. Just as a just as a final note, what do you think is the best Disney film? Like, not necessarily your favourite, but, like, it might be your favourite. What is the best? Of all time. Yeah. Lilo and Stitch. Okay. Is my It's, it's my favourite... And I, mm, is it the best? I think it's the best. I think if we're going to talk about like art style and stuff, which is maybe the theme of this mini muse, it's like that classic hand-drawn animation style 
and then all the backgrounds in Lilo and Stitch are watercolor and they were done separately and if you watch it I think it's a visually beautiful film and it has a really nice lesson in it it's all about like family and and you know I just I just love Lilo and Stitch we I could literally talk to you about it for hours yeah and I won't I'll restrain myself that's my favorite film by Disney and I think it's the best one I think it's the most visually stunning one as well and I want to know what yours is as well mine oh okay that's a tough one mine hmm I think my no I know exactly what it is don't know why I forgot about this (laughs) Mulan 100% oh okay it's it's the best it's the best all right I th- yeah, Mulan 100%. is pretty good. I only recently discovered that I really enjoyed Mulan. It wasn't one of those that's like ingrained into my childhood. It wasn't one that I went... I, I think I watched a lot more of the obscure ones when I was a kid. Like I watched like Rescuers and Great Mouse Detective and all those sorts of ones. I don't think I've seen the Rescuers. I've seen like maybe seen like bits of it, but... And there's like Atlantis, that's really good. Uh, but all the like obscure random Disney films, I mm. think I watched a lot more. Like I... I I don't, I wasn't one of these kids who was really into like Beauty and the Beast or really into Cinderella or anything like that. I um, apparently refused to take off my bell dress <laughs> um, many times. Um, there was one time when, I don't know if it was for like a school picture or like we were going out to the shops or something, but I was in a bell dress and um, my dad said, I, don't know, I think it was a school picture, my dad went, you can't send her to school in that. <laughs> my mum was like, what well, are you going to tell her to take it off? And so I went to school in my bell dress. I love it. That's just the, the little determination there. I'm staying in this. I mean, yeah, it's me to it too. But yeah, yeah Mulan, Mulan was my favourite. Like, I think all the, all the colours, like mm-hmm. when they're wearing the, the kimonos and especially, you know, at the end when like there's the male soldiers dressing up as the women mm-hmm. to like confuse the guards. And I love, I love it. I love all the little, the little details, like in the hair clip, and then like when she's cutting off her hair with all the kind of mirrored effects. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's visually stunning. Um, and I just love the the whole premise to it of like, you know, she's really determined and she she saves China. <laughs> she's one woman. Yes, she is like she is the definition. I I think she sums up this this podcast quite well and what our opinions are as well she's like this strong woman who yeah she does it all on her own she just goes and does it and goes against what like the family want and all that yeah yeah i know for the greater good she's good i I, yeah i love a bit of mulan i think i i agree with that Mm -hmm. i think that's another thing about mine being lilo and stitch is like i think the underrated character in that is nani who's the older sister and like is just doing everything to keep them both afloat yeah. I think she's an underrated character and yeah I just I yeah I think there's a lot of strong women characters in Disney and a lot of ones where they just get you know demoted to like damsel in distress which obviously that's just kind of the Disney brand and like what the theme has been in their films but I think that there are some really cool characters in there that mm. and really cool details and maybe that's the women behind the scenes who are pushing for it yeah who knows? definitely I agree lovely <laughs> and on that note and on that note we'll see you next week yeah, we'll see you next week. We'll be back with a full episode mm-hmm. like normal next week and then another mini episode the week after. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what Helen is going to tell us about next time. So see you next time, guys. Bye. See you later, everyone. Bye. <laughs>